Hello everyone, welcome back to Christian's Colloquy. I'm Christian and I'm so glad that you could join me again this week. Again, we are continuing our series on congregationalism. We've already had two installments in this series. This is the third one where we will be continuing our exploration, little summary introduction to John Cotton's historic famous work, The Keys of the Kingdom. This was a very influential uh, articulation of congregational polity, its roots, its biblical foundations back from the 17th century. And we're looking at it today just to get an understanding of how uh, congregationalism has been historically presented and then this will provide a foundation for eventually as I'll share a little bit in a moment uh, a bit of a comparison point or maybe starting point for our discussions of congregationalism today and looking at whatever questions you or I might have to discuss so Diving in now, I want to first start with a brief note about the series and then a recap of the previous episode before diving into uh, today's material. So just for a brief note, uh, this episode is part two of looking at John Cotton's uh, Keys of the Kingdom. Part one can be found on my channel. I'll leave a link in the description section down below. But uh, this episode, I advertised last time, was planned to be the episode when I would conclude this work by John Cotton looking at the final two chapters. The first five chapters we covered in the first installment were really about uh, congregational polity, church governance, internal to local churches, what's going on inside the churches, while these final two chapters are talking about how local churches then relate to church life beyond them, how they relate to other local churches, how they stand as independent bodies. But I realized as I was looking at those chapters again and preparing this episode, it is a lot of heavy content. There is a lot to say, and I know that many of you prefer shorter, less dense episodes after hearing some feedback and having some discussions. So I decided it will extend the series a bit, but I will divide these last two chapters. In today's episode, I will keep it on chapter six, talking about synods in relation to local churches. And then in the final episode, I will then talk about John Cotton's argument for why local churches should be independent, independency. So that's what we have going on. This episode will be about chapter six and John Cotton's keys of the kingdom on synods, their power, their authority, so on and so forth. So that's a little note, the series will be an extra episode. But uh, as I said, I will now briefly just provide a uh, recap. I encourage you, if you haven't seen the first episode of this John Cotton's Keys of the Kingdom, check that out. But for those of you who haven't seen it, or if you saw it and it's been a few weeks now, I will just remind you, the first episode on the first five chapters, we talked about what's going on within local churches. We introduced that there are keys of the kingdom keys talking about privileges and power within local churches and the kingdom being the church itself so just to recap we first talked about the key of faith how the key of faith belongs to all Christians. Doesn't matter who or where you are, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, in union with him, are looking forward to being in paradise in the new creation with him, you have the key of faith. You have faith, and that gives you uh, certain rights as a child of God, as a brother, as sibling, a sister of Christ, but it also gives you the responsibility to encourage and admonish other believers no matter where you are, to speak to one another as believers. Zooming in from there, 
there, though, once you move beyond the key of faith to all believers, you have the key of order and liberty. And that belongs specifically to people who are members of local churches. If you're a member of the local church, you have the privilege to take part in church life and church order. But that also means you have the responsibility to elect your officers, to elect elders. You have the responsibility to vote on and introduce new members into the congregation, to, in certain situations, perhaps uh, vote to discipline or excommunicate members. So that zoomed in, that belongs to all church members. You have the right, the responsibility, the duty to take part in those roles of the church, the liberty to elect officers, the duty to discipline members. That's on all church members. And zooming in from there, you have the key of authority, and that is given specifically to elders within local church congregations, where elders have the authority to administer the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, to preach the word, to, uh, and in the case of excommunication, while the members, or discipline, sorry, while the members vote on it, it's the elders' authority to determine what that discipline looks like. In the case of uh, officers who have been elected by the congregation, it is the authority of elders to ordain them. So we see how these things connect and how they really zoom in where it goes from keys belonging to all believers to keys belonging to all church members to then keys belonging to specific elders. And that is the presentation of historic congregationalism, how the power structure works, how the government works, and that's really the internal side of it all. Now, as I mentioned, we'll be turning to, okay, so that's the internal side of the keys of the kingdom, but how do local churches relate then with this power structure, this government style, to other churches around them in relationship with them? And that's where we now approach chapter six of Keys of the Kingdom, where John Cotton presents the power and authority given to synods. So the first question is, you might be wondering, what is a synod? Maybe you've heard of things like the Synod of Dort, a famous event in church history. Maybe you've heard of synods in the context of other denominations. If you're a Baptist, maybe you heard your Presbyterian or Dutch Reformed friends speaking about synods. But what are they? Essentially, a synod is a meeting, it's an assembly, when ministers or people or ecclesial figures of different churches meet together to discuss, make decisions, to talk about things. So essentially, synod is the term for meetings of various representatives of various local churches. It's sort of like a members meeting for a local church, but on the scale of multiple churches in a region or in a country or wherever you might have you. So a synod is essentially a meeting of various church officials from various churches. And that is now where Cotton is turning to. What, what authority, what power is given to not the local churches, but to these assemblies, these synods, these gatherings of various representatives from different local churches? So before getting into their power, uh, Cotton first begins by discussing what cause there might be for synods to gather. Why might local churches meet up together with other local churches? Cotton has three reasons why these synods might gather. First of all, 
they might gather when a church is wanting light or peace at home and desires the counsel or help of other churches, few or more. So again, uh, the quotes you see on screen if you're watching on YouTube, these come directly from the Keys of the Kingdom with Cotton's a bit more archaic style of writing and spelling. So if you're reading them, bear with me. But the first reason, the, the main point of it all is why might synods gather? Why might churches meet? It's if a particular local church uh, desires the help or counsel of other local churches. They might call a synod or attend a synod because they want the advice of other churches. Maybe other churches have been around longer, maybe they've gone through this before, or maybe they just, we want to hear other voices, so that might be a reason. And the example that Cotton gives is the famous example, the Council of Jerusalem, Acts 15, when in the Church of Antioch, there's a big uproar or debate about uh, what's going on with the old law, the Mosaic law, how that relates to Christians in the New Covenant, and we actually see at the Church of Antioch, where this is going down, that they appoint Paul and Barnabas to go to the church of Jerusalem to get help. So I'll just read out Acts 15, 1 and 2 to give you an idea of what that looks like, this gathering of a synod. So here it is. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So here, again, why might a synod gather? Exactly what's going on here. The church of Antioch is facing this huge debate and they send Paul and Barnabas and some others to go up to Jerusalem to ask them about this question, to hear their advice and their counsel. So that's the first reason, but why might a synod gather? So another reason Cotton gives... When any church is under scandal or going through a period of corruption in doctrine and practice, uh, and they cannot be healed by private advertisements of their own members or of their neighbor ministers or brethren. So that's all, again, Cotton's archaic way of saying, perhaps there's a scandal or corruption in the local church that they can't deal with on their own, that it's so pervasive or it's so consuming that even with the help of maybe the next door church or a minister down the road, they cannot handle the situation. So they need to call a synod. They need to call together a group of churches. They need to go to a much larger collection of churches to get help to fix the situation. It's beyond their local means to handle. Maybe you're thinking if a, an elders board is divided on an important issue and the church is on the brink of splitting, or maybe it's if uh, the lead pastor and a few allies have started to lead the church down the road and there's no one capable of uh, confronting them or able to speak to them. You might need a larger gathering of churches to really address the situation, call upon their wisdom, advice, and even their authority. And to support this, interestingly, John Cotton goes to uh, Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon uh, uh, book of scripture, and he pulls on Song of Solomon chapter 8 verses 8. And I'll read you chapter 8 verses 8 and 9 to give you a bit of an understanding why he's going here. So Song of Solomon uh, chapter 8 verses 8 and 9. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with uh, boards of cedar. 
So here, John Cotton, in very much the earlier uh, strong tradition of thinking of Song of Solomon Christologically, where uh, the husband is Christ and the bride is the church, uh, Cotton is speaking of uh, this sister as a local church in need of support. We have a little sister and the friends, the others, they're gathering around to build her up, to lift her up, to adorn her, to help her out. And that's where Cotton sees, hey, if you're a local church in need of help, uh, you're the little sister here. Go to the other churches and they will build you up. So that's very, again, Christological interpretation of Song of Solomon. And the sister here is a local church in need of support. Third reason now is that it may fall out of the state that all the churches in the country may be corrupted and beginning to discern their corruption, may desire to counsel one another for a speedy and safe and general reformation. So here, Cotton is saying that there might be a synod called, the churches might gather in this way because all of them realize, hey, in our region, in our country, something is happening that we're maybe losing numbers or maybe we're losing our, uh, our grasp on orthodox Christian theology. Maybe we're all facing issues with discipline. You, you could have all sorts of different situations where they all realize, hey, we need to gather together and figure out what is going on what are we getting wrong what are we doing wrong why are we failing here or there or wherever we might be and go towards a general reformation of the church they would all come together and say hey let's all together make this change or all together go back to the word of god on this issue and cotton sees this supported not from the new testament interestingly he goes back to the old testament he looks especially at chronicles where you have the good kings of judah often leading uh, general reformations of their entire country and that of course it gets into cotton's view of how the new testament relates to the old but he sees the old testament uh kingdom of judah and israel by extent in the covenant as a national church and sometimes the king calls together the national church of the kingdom uh, to use that language, to lead to general reformation. And in Chronicles, that typically looks like the good king gathering together the priests, getting rid of the false priests of the false gods, tearing down the high places, tearing down the Asher poles or the temples of Baal, whatever it might be, and leading to general reformation in the kingdom. And that's where Cotton says, hey, churches in the New Testament, we could be like that, where if we notice a problem in our region, we could gather together and remove the proverbial Astro poles, whatever they might be, or get rid of the false priests, whoever they might be, and that sort of thing. So those are the three reasons why, in Cotton's mind, the synod might gather, why local churches might send representatives, delegates to gather together for big meetings like this. But now with those reasons, uh, reasons, the question becomes, what is the power of the synod? Once it gathers for one of these reasons, what can the synod actually accomplish? So uh, I'll just read again. This is a big, hefty chapter, but I'll just give you some key points. So, quoting Cotton, For the first, we dare not say that their power reacheth no farther than giving counsel. For such as their ends be, for which according to God they do assemble, such is the power given them of God, so they may attain those ends. So first of all, we have to note here that what's a synod's power? Well, primarily, it's the power to give counsel. 
They are a counseling body where if a church needs advice or they need help, that's why you go to the synod. That's why you reach out to other churches. But of course here, as I just read, it's phrased that it's not just for counsel. That might be the main thing they do, but it goes farther than that. If the church, let's say, meets to address a problem going throughout all the churches, they actually have the power to correct that. If the uh, if a local church comes before a synod with an issue in their local church, they actually have the power to address that issue, whatever that might look like. So, of course, this is historic congregationalism. There might be some changes how a lot of congregationalists view it today or in different denominations. But Cotton here is saying they, if they gather to address a problem, they actually have the power, uh, if it's in keeping with the word of God, to rectify it, to actually seek its uh, correction. So, extending on from there, Cotton says... And seeing also a synod sometimes meeteth to convince and admonish an offending church or presbytery, of presbytery here meaning a local church's perhaps elders board or pastors at the local church, they have the power, therefore, if they cannot heal the offenders, to determine to withdraw communion from them. And further, seeing they meet likewise sometimes for general information, they have the power to decree and publish such ordinances as conduced according to the word unto such reformation so the authority here given to the synods in cotton's mind is if there's a problem with a local church in particular or a local church's leadership they have the power to withdraw communion from them to kick them out of the association kick them out of the assembly to no longer have anything to do with them and if it is that instance of general reformation they have the power to declare new ordinances maybe it's a new teaching program maybe it's a new uh affirmation churches have to get on board with we see those even in our contemporary times but they have the power to actually enforce those things among the churches of the uh, fellowship of the association of the synodical representation the churches present through their delegates so moving on from there now that we've uh, determined that these synods have reasons to gather, that they have power that goes beyond counsel to actually pursue restoration, to re pursue reconciliation, or even admonish and discipline, what is the role of the average church member in this situation? The role of the brethren, as Cotton calls them. Cotton says here that the brethren, just the members of local churches who are represented at these synods, they have the power of liberty. Of course, that refers back to the key of liberty, where we mentioned that before in the context of members in local churches. And it's very much a similar thing here. And Cotton is building on the uh, example or the description of the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 to make this case. First, he notes that in Acts 15, 7 and 12, that uh, the church members, the body, the normal Christians present there, they have the liberty to dispute their doubts modestly and Christianly among the elders. So if you look up those passages, you'll note there that uh, the normal, the normal Christians use that term, the members, they are just speaking their mind. At a certain point, they choose to remain silent to hear what's going on. That's choice to remain silent, implying that they were voicing their concerns, they were giving suggestions, they have the right to be a part of these synods as speakers, as people engaging in proceedings, offering their thoughts and offering their doubts. 
Not only that, with this power of liberty, the brethren of the church has the liberty to join with the apostles and elders in approving the sentence of James and determining the same and, uh, as the common sentence of all of them. So looking again at Acts 15 and this council, where we'll see if you read the chapter, James makes that proclamation at the end. He determines what's going on. But the church members, the members present in Jerusalem at the synod, they sign their name on the decision. They give assent to the decision. This is very similar to what goes on in the local church where the elders might have a plan, they might recommend someone to membership perhaps, or recommend someone to be uh, elected as an elder, but at the end of the day, the members have to sign off. They have to raise their hands. They have to join in and determine that this is the right course so that they are unified in that decision. Very similar to what goes on in local churches. Finally, they have the liberty to join with the apostles and elders in choosing and sending messengers and in writing synodical letters in the name of all and the publishing of the sentence of the synod. So here we see that at the end of the day, they join in with the synod, with the elders present there, or even the apostles there in the case of Acts 15 in Jerusalem, where the members join in and they issue the synod's letter to the other church wondering what to do. They are part of that authority structure in their own unique way, where if you read uh, Acts 15, 22, 23, and 29, 29 having what they actually decided, it's the apostles, the elders, and the whole church which determines what they will actually do and issues the letter to Antioch to let them know what's going on. So the brethren have a very important role. So now that we talked about the power of the synods, that they might actually issue decrees and declare ordinances to admonish churches or lead to general reformation, what about the synod's limits? So, Cotton turns again, Acts 15 being a huge chapter, to say that from the pattern of the precedent of the synods in Acts 15, they laid upon the churches no other burden but those necessary for the things necessary. So the synod only has the authority to do what is necessary for the issue at hand. So if a church comes with uh, an issue about, hey, uh, some of our elders are being problematic, the synod can speak to that issue, but then they can't go start saying, hey, but while we're here, let us also make some ordinances about how you guys practice Sunday school or how you practice uh, the Lord's Supper. No, the synod, if it's called for an issue, it remains focused on that issue and can only make decrees and ordinances in relation to that specific necessary issue being addressed. So the power is limited by the issue itself. Further than that, uh, uh, Cotton goes on to talk about the apostles and how their commission speaks to the commission of synods. He says, the apostles are commanded to teach the people to observe all the things which Christ has commanded. If then the apostles teach the people to observe more than Christ hath commanded, they go beyond the bounds of their commission. So the synod can only speak to the issue that it's being called to deal with, and they can't go beyond what Christ has commanded. Just like the apostles could not teach what Christ had not teached, 
They couldn't go beyond what Christ had commanded them. The synod can't go beyond what Christ commands them. So they're limited by the issue and they're limited by the word of God. They can't go beyond what the word of God teaches to address an issue. That is their guide. That is their set standard. That is their parameter for addressing issues. So I, I can think of some crazy examples, but perhaps uh, a synod is dealing with a local church who is teaching, uh, who has a pastor who is teaching wrong things. They might encourage a local church to do one thing or another. They might say, hey, unless this pastor is removed by you, we are removing our fellowship with you. But they can't say, hey, go tie up that pastor and leave him in the woods for three weeks. And that's how you'll deal with the issue. That goes beyond what their authority is given in scripture. Local churches don't have the right to kidnap someone and leave them in the woods. So they can't go beyond the word of God to deal with the situation. They can't go beyond what Christ has commanded. Christ has established means of discipline, of admonishment, of encouragement. You can't go beyond those means. You can't start making up ways of dealing with issues that go beyond what Christ has taught in certain situations or what Christ has commanded. That was a very interesting, weird example that popped into my head, but there are a lot more practical ones I'm sure we'll unpack later on in the series. Finally, on Synod's Linnets, uh, the office is stewardly, not lordly. They are ambassadors from Christ and for Christ. So again, Synod's, they can't lord over a congregation. They can't lord over people as arbitrary dictators who rule by decree. Rather, they are stewards. They come alongside. They work with people. And again, this will get into the church's independency in the next installment and in the final chapter of Keys of the Kingdom. But this is very much where we see Synods are to local churches what elders are to church members and their local churches. So again, it's not a lord over the church. Again, Christ is the only king of the church. He's the only one who can make decrees, who can issue laws. Synods, however, they are the ones who come alongside, who counsel, advise, and in particular situations have the authority to address the issues through giving ordinances, through admonishing, and in severe cases, withdrawing fellowship. So this is Cotton's explanation of synods. They have reasons why they can gather. They have powers in the case of situations, but these powers are limited by the situation itself and by what Christ has given them to do. What Christ has commanded and taught, they can't go beyond that. And within that all, as we noted, the local churches, the members are active participants at a synod just alongside the elders or whatever ecclesiastical figures are present, local church members, they have the right to issue their doubts, to talk about their questions, and offer whatever wisdom they might have. Of course, that is a key point of congregationalism, as it was in the local churches. Every church member, every Christian has been blessed and gift, gifted for the sake of the church by Christ, and they should express that. They should share their gifting for the good of all the churches. So anyway, this has been the role of synods, their power and authority, according to John Cotton in this episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you have any questions, please leave them down below. Send me an email. Get in touch with me. I want to hear what you have to say. I want this to be a colloquy. But that's all I have for this time. In the next installment, we'll talk about John Cotton's understanding of independency of churches. And then from there, we'll move into the series, getting into modern issues and questions and how congregationalism should be or is practiced in a Baptist context. Anyway, that's truly it this time. I hope you enjoyed. Catch you next time on Christian's Colloquy. Take care.